Good afternoon, everyone. This is your host, John, of The Research Review, creating a platform to connect and inspire. I'm here with another excellent researcher today, Kyle, who actually inspired me when I first got into research. He was one of the older students I connected with and told me about all of his fantastic projects. I thought to myself, wow, he's accomplished so much during undergrad shows me everything that I can do as well. So Kyle, it's awesome to have you on. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research? You're making me sound way cooler than what I am, but <laughs> I'm Kyle Rediger. With I'm the a aviator fifth year. sunglasses. <laughs> I'm a fifth year professional pilot major. I'm commercial pilot, instrument rated, private pilot, instrument rated, part 107 certified. I have three minors, aviation weather, aviation law and policy, and paralegal studies. I actually found the SURE program by accident. I kind of clicked on to my mentor early. I had him for aviation law. I had him for security and policy in the Aer- Aeronautic College, which was cool because you would be looking at all sorts of interesting law cases that were like, what the heck were these people thinking? Mm-hmm. So that got me interested in it. And of course, I, w- I was wanted to go into the Air Force. I couldn't because I had a herniated disc. I, I was going to fly the B-1 bomber, the supersonic, yeah, the cool one. yeah. The one that's beautiful, but the fuel injectors inside of it don't work. So like there's a hunt, there's like 96 of them just sitting on empty ramps in the United States because they can't fix the fuel injectors. And they're like, eh, we don't need you anymore. And I'm like, no, (laughs) you can't get rid of her. (laughs) So when was your first experience in the SURE program? What year were you? I was 2021. So last year I got into it. And my research was on air disasters and engineering failures. Uh So I looked at DC-10 accidents. I looked at the Concorde, the Shuttle Columbia, and uh, the Boeing 737 MAX 8. And what was your favorite one to look at? The MAX 8 and the DC-10. What's that? So the DC-10 is interesting because it is an aircraft that was made to compete with the Boeing 747. Uh And at the time when the DC-10 came out, nobody liked the 747. Boeing's incredible queen of the skies which also interestingly last november no it was this year they canceled the 747 boeing said we're done we're not making it anymore so everybody's sitting here scratching your heads like so why did you get rid of the 747 and the bigger question is what's going to replace the queen of the skies yeah this plane has been in the skies for so long i mean you have air force one you have the the, the doomsday plane that mm-hmm. the Pentagon has, that that's the plane that you really watch for in the skies. It's like, oh, yeah, cool. You know, the president's up in the air. Oh, that's sweet. I see the 747. The doomsday plane is, where's that going and what's going on? Mm-hmm. Why does that plane need to go up? What are they simulating right now or what is seriously going wrong? So you have the DC-10, which is a small, wide-body aircraft that could carry about 500 passengers. On. Okay. So everybody loved it. But the problem was there was two key things for the dc-10 was designed to be an air force refueler and did become the kc-10 which was an air force refueler Mm -hmm. you had a look at the diagram and it was looking at the hydraulic lines inside of the dc-10 yeah so you look at the hydraulic system here so what do you notice that's wrong in the back of that picture here you notice how that all the hydraulic lines lead to one point in the back of the horizontal stabilizer Yes, I see that. So the Air Force noticed this one small problem, and they were like, look, 
if we take flack at any point and it cuts that line because, you know, Air Force refuelers have to fly in really dangerous areas mm-hmm. in combat missions so they can fuel the frontline fighters so they can keep going. Yeah. And the DC-10 had that one in the left horizontal stabilizer. They were like, look, if if we get shot here and we bleed out, it's useless. We just lost a whole crew. Uh-huh. So Douglas was like, okay, we can actually, you know, we can rearrange it and put the hydraulic pumps in three different spots and have all these check valves. So if something goes wrong, it cuts the fuel flow to the leak. But we didn't do it to the passenger airliners because the Air Force originally said, no, we don't want it until you fix that problem. And they were like, ah, you know what? We'll just produce them as passenger plane. Yeah. And of course, you take all the fuel tanks in the back out. You put a bunch of seats in there. And now you have air companies that are just like airliners just going because this is the time. You got to look at when this plane came out and a time of deregularization back in 1980, deregularization with Ronald Reagan. You have all these companies that want to make a name for themselves, and the DC 10 is that plane. Yeah. So, so the DC 10 wasn't even designed to be commercial? No, it wasn't. It was, only, it was supposed to be an Air Force refueler first. Huh. They, they wanted that, they wanted it first as a Air Force refueler, but it's insane with what it did because they had so many different f- different features of the DC-10. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them were a little bit longer. And the DC-10 was the founder, well, I would say like the grandfather because, you know, the older planes, the grandpa, the newer planes, like the, the grandkid. Yeah, yeah. It's weird. You don't have parent planes. You just have grand generations. That led to the MD-11. But the MD-11 had problems, too, from McDonnell Douglas because they decided, you know what? This is such a big cargo plane. Uh Well, guess what? (laughs) We're going to make the horizontal stabilizer smaller, which the horizontal stabilizer controls your pitch movement. Right, like with the nose? Yes. So it's controlling your pitch, but if it's so much smaller, you have this tendency to bounce. So what it'll do is it'll bounce bounce mm-hmm. and then it would just roll over on itself because now you you damage the landing gear so yeah. bad does that happen in memphis with a ups not a ups but a fedex md11 uh-huh. which everybody was like we don't understand why this happened and then they looked into the horizontal stabilizers blueprints and they were like this is way too small then you have one in japan that very turbulent very choppy day these guys got hit they're like they're coming in screaming yeah. for the runway and they bounce once, bounce twice, and then they flip over on themselves, and they caught it on security fan- camera. And, and it, it, that video's online. Uh-huh. You can find it. What do you Google? Uh, just go, go to YouTube and just MD-11 crash. Here, I'll, I'll pull it up real quick. Okay. Yeah, just, just take a look at that video. It's going to come in real fast because it's going to come from this direction inward. Yeah, there it wow. is. That thing is lighting up. Because it, it bounced. It, this, the, fa- the camera didn't get the bounces. Uh-huh. But watch, it's going to come in real quick. So there's where it touches down. Uh-huh. Nose down, bounce again. I see that. I see that. Yeah. Bounces back up, wing hits and then, the ground, and, and it's now, it, now it's flipping over. Yeah. Wow. And they couldn't catch that before. Well, they rushed it to market, and this is what my research is about. Mm-hmm. They kept rushing these planes that they knew darn well was not okay to go into market. And that's where you look at your DC-10. Mm-hmm. You have your first incident where you look at the aft cargo door. That was the second of the two design flaws of it, where the aft cargo door had such horrible locking mechanisms and pins in the door yeah. that here, if I pull up a picture of a DC-10, I'll show you. It's just the door is in the... So when I mean aft, aft means backwards. So okay. like you have a center of gravity in the middle. 
a forward CG is anything in front of that DC-10, and aft is more towards the tail. Yeah. So the more aft you are, it's actually better to cruise with with an aft CG because it's more fuel efficient, and you can cruise at a much higher speed, which means you get there faster. Mm -hmm. But what we have now is looking at this aft cargo door with bad locking pins, and it just... They it would just open in flight and just like rip mid- off the back. Wow, <laughs> it, it, it seems like such small things that are just overlooked. They are that little square at the back. Look at the last by the last window. There's a little white square. That's your aft cargo door. Right, right on top, like underneath of the tail. Yeah, right here. This that guy, guy, right here. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's your that's your aft cargo door. So the picky the picks like not the picks but the locking mechanism. Yeah, would it was like a claw. It would ro- roll into the side beam and it would hold it there. So you get to your first one with the Windsor Ontario crash. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't a crash. The door in the back opens in flight and it you know causes a rapid decompression. But thankfully, it was the aircraft was over Windsor, Ontario, and they yeah. went in. They they landed there, and they re, they discovered okay, there was a problem with the aft cargo door. We'll just reinforce it. They don't reinforce it. Why didn't they reinforce it? Well, you got to look at McDonnell Douglas's horrible business practices mm-hmm. because McDonnell Douglas was very. I need to save as much money as possible. Yeah, where you know Boeing's whipping us. And other small aircraft companies at the time are whipping us. We just need to put a plane into market, get it going, get it going, get it going. And then they, with the DC-10, they were like, oh, wow, we're, we're like a success with this. Yeah. So they were just like, keep pumping them to market. We know that there's problems here, but we're going to throw them in. So now that they throw these planes into market, you know, you have people flying them all the time. Mm-hmm. Defects happen. So the first defect was the aft cargo door. Yeah. So the Windsor, Ontario incident, it's fine. Let me get the tail number of that. But that that was a cargo plane, right? Yes. So it basically, it went from so flight ninety six was going from Detroit to Buffalo, mm-hmm. and what happened was shortly after takeoff, that aft cargo door swung open. Yeah. You're going about probably two hundred knots, which is about like two hundred fifteen miles per hour. That door is going to swing out and just get ripped out immediately. So it causes a rapid decompression plane lands at Windsor, Ontario, because they were like, look, we need to put this plane down. We don't know how bad it is. Mm-hmm. They put the plane down, and then they realize, whoa, where's the half cargo door? And it just like flew right oh, off of the gone. plane. Wow. It was gone. So the NTSB comes in, and they're, they're looking at it, and they were like, okay, so the half cargo door, that's the one. That's the reason that this all happened. Thankfully, everybody came. Everybody lived, and now you have the NTSB going, hey, we need to reinforce this aft cargo door. Yeah. So we don't have this happen again. And they're they're investigating, they're asking, hey, like they're asking mechanics and all that, did you guys have a problem locking it? They're like, no, it, it locked fine. It just we we probably had fatigue in the pins. Mm-hmm. So they chalk it off as, you know, it was an incident. Well, substantial damage to the aircraft, it's an accident. Everything goes quiet for a little bit. Until American 191. American 191 from Chicago Air O'Hare. And th- this is another cargo plane? This is the same DC-10, but okay. this is a passenger DC-10. Okay. I know there's repercussions on a company when an accident like this would happen on a passenger plane, but are there any serious repercussions on a company that happens when, say, a door flies off on a cargo plane? I know, I know it gets noticed. It gets noticed, but what happens is they go ahead and the mechanics tell them, hey, you know, we, 
we didn't inspect it. We didn't think we needed to inspect it, or we did inspect it. We didn't see any problems with it. Mm-hmm. So this what what would happen is they would make make a more a better maintenance practice of where yeah. they would be like, okay, we need to inspect this more, and they'll continue to inspect it. They were like, okay, well, we threw like harder hardcore pins in there, and mm-hmm. now it's not going to go anywhere. So you go and you have American One Ninety One out of Chicago O'Hare. And this is another one that was a bit a bit interesting because another maintenance problem showed up. And this is one that we found that was pretty hardcore. Crew, beautiful day, clear in a million. Crew's supposed to fly, um, I think it was to Denver. Okay. But crew takes off, and all of a sudden they see their their engine pressure, fuel flow, and all that for the en- en- number one engine just goes to zero. And all of a sudden, they take off, and the plane's heavy and wants to lift like this. Uh-huh. So, like, the plane wants – its right wing wants to keep lifting up more. Yeah. And it's tilting this plane because you have two engines. So you have – the aircraft has three engines. The left engine's number one, right engine is number three, and the tail engine's number two. Okay. And just one on the tail? Yeah, just one on the tail. Right. So if you have two circular disks uh-huh. moving in a clockwise rotation – that's going to cause the plane to want to turn more to one side right, than the sense. other because yeah. this wing's not producing that lift and you don't have that force on it. So the plane wants to roll uh-huh. like this. So it's going to cause this roll. Now the pilots are freaking out because they're like, okay, we've, we've lost an engine at this point. We yeah. don't know where it is. And the system engineer goes, hey, we also lost hydraulics. And they were like, what do you mean we lost hydraulics? Because you can't look back and you can't see if the engine's gone or not from the front of the plane. You can only just listen to what the instruments tell you. Right. The amount of what you can see in a cockpit is actually very small. All instruments. Mm-hmm. You have to trust what they tell you. So this engine falls off the plane. So they're trying to circle back to the runway. And, of course, this tilt is getting worse and worse. And they were fighting it all the way to the end till the aircraft, what we call aerodynamically stalls. Yeah exceeded such a bank that the engines and the wings are not producing lift anymore and the nose drops you've probably seen this picture in textbooks you get this right here this accident was captured from the airport terminal somebody found it like they were watching the whole thing and they took the picture this plane is in the aerodynamic stall right now where the nose is down, the wings are banked well beyond what it's supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, it looks, it's like turned all the way over to the side where it's about to do a barrel roll. Exactly. And unfortunately, this thing ends up crashing short of the runway and into, I think, a, yeah, into a trailer park. Wow. Which, I mean, everybody on board was killed. The yeah. captain was actually, it was sad because the captain talked to his family. He was like, yeah, you know, I got to pick up an extra flight on 191. I'll be home tonight. He had a good heart. He was a very big family man, and of course, you know, yeah. he, he was like, you know what, I love flying, I got some time, I don't want to be on the ground, I'll pick it up. So he goes, he was going to pick up the flight, and unfortunately, you know, that was his last rodeo. When you're investigating one of these situations, you look at, you know, the background of the pilot, what was leading up to this situation, and everything like that? Yes, you do, you do look into the background of the pilots, mm-hmm. because my goal is to go into the NTSB as an investigator in charge in IIC. Yeah. And for those who don't know, the NTSB is the National Transportation Safety Board. They investigate aircraft accidents, boat accidents, oil gas wells, mm-hmm. like road accidents, anything that goes into our Department of Commerce through transportation. Okay. The NTSB, if it meets certain criteria, they, they come out and they investigate it. Yeah. I'm talking, you go back a week and you look at what these pilots did. 
you're like, where did they go from this time to this time? Did they get adequate sleep? When yeah. did they clock into work? When did they clock out of work? What were they doing? At, what were they known like in the company? Were they like a jerk to everybody around them? Were they like the nicest guy ever? Or was he like sloppy with his flight controls? Was he good with his flight controls? Those are the questions you've got to ask. Yeah. You dive into the pilot records and you just you pick out so many things and you put it on a spreadsheet. Like from this time to this time, they did this. Because mm-hmm. you have to, you'll have like a documented psychiatrist on your team. You'll have experts. You'll have eight, nine experts, and then one investigator in charge. Wow. So, I mean, there's like all different people collaborating on this. Exactly. Because you want to get down to the bottom of the problem, and you want to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. But the NTSB cannot make law. So you can only provide recommendations. And it's down to the companies that will either take it or reject it. Yeah. That's where we face a problem here on, yeah, we can give all the recommendations in the world. However... You cannot just be like, yep, that's a law right here. Unless the lawmakers in Congress or a state representative or someone like that, if you follow the channels of how law is made, mm-hmm. that's when the law gets made. Right. But most of the time, businesses are pretty good about it. They're like, okay, you know what? We don't want this to happen again. We want our name to stay fresh. We want to be this company that puts safety over money. Yeah. So, yeah, we're putting the implementing, the extra training. They go the extra mile to make sure pilots are safe again. So because you, an air accident is one hour per one million out flight hours. So it could be something small. Right. So it's easier to make a change by going through a company rather than through a, a politician and making it a law. Usually the politicians are on it. It all depends on how bloody the accident is. Mm-hmm. It's... Unfortunately, aviation regulations and aviation laws are written in blood. It's yeah. just like the fireman's code book. The fireman's code book is literally a book of the dead. My history teacher told me that because he was a retired firefighter when I was in high school. So he's like, yeah, the, the fireman's code book is literally, you know, he's like, there's a reason why you can't have paper mache in places. There's a reason that the doors open how they do. Yeah. It's just like aviation. There was a British airliner that went down. It was the 737 hallway doors were like 22 inches across. Mm -hmm. And they found out because there was a fire and the plane landed. However, a lot of people were trampled. A lot of people got stuck and some people died because of it. So what they did was they were like, okay, hey, so we want to have a little psychology experiment. So we're going to borrow one of your 747s Uh and we're going to pay people. Whoever gets out that plane first gets 50 bucks. So, of course, everybody's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get this 50 bucks. Yeah. But it actively depicted what happened on that plane because the investigators wanted to get down to the bottom. They realized if they just made the hallway door instead of 22 inches, 30 inches, Uh everybody would have been off the plane fine. And then what they did was they were like, okay, now that we modified the 737, now the hallway doors are 30 inches, everybody got off fine. It was insane. Just that eight-inch difference. Exactly. Huh. It's it's wild. Were you able to see the footage from the psychology experiment? Yes, it's online. It is? Yes. That would be such a crazy thing to see. It is. And yeah. this is just some of the things that investigators do. You have to actively think outside the box mm-hmm. on what to get to the bottom of it. Right. Because sometimes you're not even given clues. You look at one of my other accidents that I looked into, uh, Pacific Southwest Airways 1771. Yeah. They knew that there was a hijacking that happened, but they couldn't prove it. So what they had to do was they had to go above and beyond and picking the pieces apart 
just to figure out what happened that David Burke brought the plane down. Mm -hmm. So just some background, Pacific Southwest Airways was a hijacking incident that happened in California in the 1980s. Actually, it might not have been 1980s, 1970s, 1980s, where there was a disgruntled employee. He worked for Pacific Southwest Airways, really nice company. Everybody knew him. Everybody loved him. They flew British Aerobats, which is an, it's a small two-engine aircraft, good for short commuter hops. Mm-hmm. So on the day of the accident, you had people just coming home from work. It's late in the evening. So this employee has a badge, gets on the plane, and he's really he's angry with his boss because his boss fired him because he was stealing from the company. He got on the plane after he was fired. Yes, and they did not. Okay, so this that's where I'm going with okay. this. So you Okay, so on the morning, not in the morning, but the afternoon, they take off and, you know, the pilots are talking about, "Hey, you know, what are you going to get your son for Christmas, you know, cuz it's getting close to that time." Mm-hmm. And the 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 co-pilots like, "Yeah, you know, I, I might get my son a Nintendo or something." All of a sudden they hear two gunshots. And they're like, oh, my God, that was a gunshot. And you can hear it in the CVR. You can actually get the CVR online. That's crazy how you would be listening to that. And it just goes from such a casual conversation to just gunshots going off. Yeah, and that's what happens. Because accidents in the aviation industry just happen on the flip of a dime, mm-hmm. on the drop of a dime. So they hear two gunshots. And these pilots, they just snap right into what they were supposed to do. Their training kicks right in. So the first officer goes, okay, squawk 77, squawk 77. What does that mean? 7700 is a code that we put in the transponders to tell ATC, air traffic control, there is an emergency and we need your attention now. Mm -hmm. So, of course, they call the towers just like, what's going on? Why are you squawking 7700? Tell us the nature of your emergency. Yeah. All they hear is, we had a gun fired on board. And that's their last call. Because then it cuts to the cockpit voice recorder. Uh And we'll get into that in a second because I love telling this story like this. So you got to go back to what was happening dur- earlier in the day. So you got to look at the person that hijacked the plane, David Burke. David Burke was somebody that worked on as a aircraft cleaner. He after the plane would pull into the ramp, he would clean the aircraft. Mm-hmm. There was money that was missing in the bar proceeds of the plane. So like you know, you could get drinks on the plane. Yeah. So this man was actually going into the money box for these flight cart, and he was taking the money from it. And that's why he got fired? Yeah, they yeah. caught him on camera. So, of course, Pacific Southwest Airways, and mind you, he was fired from a company in Buffalo for doing the same thing, but he left mm-hmm. before he, you know, faced the music. Right. He was like, all right, I'm gone. Bye. I, I, don't, I don't care. Shows up Pacific Southwest Airways, gets caught stealing, gets fired, but then the airline was like, you know what, we'll give you an appeal hearing, which means you can come back, just explain to us what happened. His boss, Ray Thomas, goes, no. I'm not letting you do that. You stole from the company. I don't agree with it. Mm -hmm. So Burke responds, and this was all documented from the secretary. Burke responds, why you got to be such a jerk, Ray? Like, I I did none of this. And he goes, well, we caught you on camera, so you did do this. And so he goes, you know what? I don't need to hear this. And he walks out. Yeah. So the secretary goes, hey, Ray, I just wanted to say have a nice day. He goes, oh, I plan on having a great day. And he walks out the office. They, they were saying the FBI looks into it and goes, okay, at some point between that, that time of him leaving the office to when he got on the plane, he found a 44 revolver. He either bought it or he had it at his place. He wraps it up in a handkerchief, gets on the same flight that mm-hmm. Ray Thomas is on. While he's there, 
he gets on the same plane and he knew darn well he wasn't coming home that night so he doesn't care yeah but what was the big thing you think you know smuggling a 44 revolver would have been caught in this time right right no it wasn't because airline employees did not need to get checked by the tsa huh. But because companies, the airlines were in charge of screenings. Yeah. So if you were an employee, they didn't care. They knew you weren't going to bring stuff on. Mm-hmm. But why, why did he still have his badge if he was fired? Because they didn't terminate it enough in time. They huh. didn't terminate it fast enough. And I, that was probably because I'll do it in the morning because it was late in the evening. Yeah. You know, people are getting ready to go home. And especially if you have to catch a flight back. Let me pull up the note because it's really sad what, what David Burke brought up. Okay, yeah. This is what David Burke wrote to his boss, Ray Thompson, before he gets on the plane. It says, Hi, Ray. I think it's sort of ironical that we end up like this. I asked for some leniency for my family, remember? Well, I got none, and you'll get none. When when did he send that to him? He put it in an air sickness bag. He wrote it, like, before he got on the plane. Yeah. So he goes ahead and puts it in an air sickness bag, and he's sitting ahead of Ray Thompson. Uh Uh-huh. So, of course, you know, Ray Thompson, he's sitting there. You'd imagine, you know, it's late work. You're just unwinding. He doesn't even notice him. This air sickness bag lands in his lap. Uh And he just sees someone that looks like the guy he just fired. Yeah. So he reads the note, and he's like, hold on. That's the guy I just fired. And, of course, when he gets done reading, all you hear, and you hear this, hey, Ray, bah, bah, two shots go right into the back of him. Wow. And then, of course, he's like, okay, you know, I just did it. I killed Ray, walks to the cockpit, and what does the flight attendant do? Whips open the cockpit door and goes, sir, we have a problem. And of course, this is the ironic line of the whole thing. Yeah. Sir, we have a problem. And the captain looks over and goes, what's the problem? Flight attendant gets killed right there. I'm the problem, shoots the two pilots. Wow. So now there's the question that needs to be brought up. What happened with the last shot? Who did he kill? A lot of people think he did it to himself. I don't believe it. There was a there was the chief flight, like the chief pilot mm-hmm. on board the aircraft at the time. I believe the last bullet went into him because he did try. They they speculate he tried to stop uh, David Burke after he got the flight attendant because he was like, "Look, this is crazy what you're doing. Just yeah. stop. Just put the gun down." And of course, you hear that last shot, and then someone has to push the nose down. Now, what they speculate is the, the the suicide theory I don't buy because if you're going to push the cock, the nose of the flight controls down, mm-hmm. it, you're not standing up. You don't just shoot yourself and then all of a sudden the nose pitches down. Like yeah. That. No. He had to manipulate a full nose down descent. Like I'm talking, it impacted engines broke the speed of sound when it came into the ground. Really? Yeah. It just went like straight nose dive. Straight nose dive. And it created a crater like 20 feet deep. The only thing that the NTSB had at their disposal uh-huh. was papers from the accident and very, very twisted pieces of mess- metal. And you had no bodies. The plane was, everything was just obliterated. Everything was obliterated. There was no bodies. Wow. It hit the ground so hard that it, the bodies, there was none. That's crazy. So you had really not much to go off of, but they were able, the FBI and the NTSB were able to put together the pieces of this case that was just, it was, it was wild. Yeah. How'd they get access to the recording? They found the cockpit voice recorders in that giant pit of where all everything was twisted up in. 
and they only had seven seconds of the re- of the flight data recorder. Yeah. But they found the the actual cockpit voice recorder. That's where they heard all of the events of "I'm the problem." Yeah. So they knew that there was a murder on the on the plane. Mm-hmm. They needed to figure out who it was. They didn't know it was David Burke at the time. They had to scour the scene and try to find the murder weapon because now, of course, there's a murder in international skies. Becomes the a California one of California's worst mass murders, and they needed to find the murder weapon. They find it in two pieces. So if they found the barrel first, uh-huh. and uh, the next day. They found the actual trigger mechanism with a piece of David Burke's finger in it. That's nasty. They find that and they fingerprint it because uh-huh. it was just the tip right here yeah. that they found in the trigger guard. That was the only body fragment that survived was the was the finger. Wow. And they and were they were the, able to piece it together. Needed. That's yeah. what they needed. So that that was that's some of the things that you have to look for as an NTSB investigator. Sometimes. Your case can either be a few days mm-hmm. or it could be a couple years. Yeah. Uh, what else do you want to do after undergrad? Uh, for me, what my plan is, I want to go ahead and I want to work in as a car- cargo uh, pilot. Mm-hmm. I also want to go and get my law license to be an aviation attorney. Yeah. I really like what I do. Professor Lorenzen is an aviation attorney and he's someone I look up to a lot. Mm-hmm. He got me into this and just some of the... The cases are just absolutely interesting in aviation to be a lawyer and to see what all goes on. Sounds like it. And I mean, there's so much, there's, there's so much stuff that's unsolved. Yeah. Yeah. But th- these are like, they're not like the aviation attorney isn't the one that's going in there like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm on the accident site. That's the investigator in charge. The mm-hmm. aviation attorney is, you may be providing like consultation for someone you could be doing like, hey, you know. I want to I want to buy this plane. I really like this plane, but you know, the logbooks aren't there. And you know, the mechanics like I'm not giving you this logbook. The previous pilot, you know, didn't pay me, so I'm stiff arming you and I want my money. Okay. And I got the you. pilot's like, "I just I this this it's not my this is my problem." Yeah. I I'm going to go ahead and take you to court if I can't because the the mechanic wants the money, but you know, that's a whole nother can of worms mm-hmm. right there yeah but yeah. so do you think so you'll do that as your full-time job and then you'll think you'll work like with the ntsb on the side well the ntsb is like the end goal so okay. you go ahead you start you got to be in the air industry for at least 10 years mm-hmm. to, before you go into the ntsb they want you to be as well-rounded as you possibly can like you just you understand the plane like pilots have to know the plane inside outside front back yeah the systems that run it the fuel grade everything and like you said to be able to think outside the box too Mm -hmm. before you can actually like get in beyond the on the front line as per se like once there's an accident you're the guy that goes out there first Mm -hmm. you know sure fire rescue they go out there they save who they can but then plane's yours once an accident happens it's the faa's and the ntsb is allowed to go in there and look because they have jurisdiction if it meets certain criteria yeah now what other projects are you currently working on right now because i know you you have a lot going on (laughs) i do (laughs) so i'm also working with professor lorenzen Mm -hmm. on bringing commercial drone aviation to the state of ohio yeah like you know with amazon where they're bringing you go out you buy something from amazon and then a drone will come and drop it off to your house that's what we're trying to bring to the state is this going on anywhere right now? Uh, well, we're looking at right now, for us in the state, 
of Ohio. You have states like New York, North Carolina, uh, North Dakota. Some they're going in there. They're they're testing with it, but Ohio's kind of in the lead right now. There's some things I can and I can't talk about yeah, with of it. Course. <laughs> I could only give you like the the bare minimum with it, and it, it stinks. Yeah, because there's so many cool things behind the scenes that we're doing, but. Uh, aviation we're, we're coming to it i mean honest to god like at the end of our lifetimes we may not we may not have roadways because if you look at how much it takes to maintain one mile roadway it's a million dollars per mile wow for yes. how, how often like if you have to replace a mile of road it's like a million dollars so if you go ahead i know companies like honda companies like um lighter than air Mm-hmm. they're coming up and they're coming up with technology to bring urban air mobility and advanced air mobility, which is like an air taxi service. So air Uber. Wow. That would be insane. That would yeah. be incredible. Uh, there's actually yeah. a group in Rome. I know it's, they're bringing air taxi service to downtown Rome, mm-hmm. but this is like, we could see this hope maybe in like 12 months, a year. In Rome or in... In Italy. In, 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 in Italy, Italy, just that one little taxi line. But, of course, I don't, I don't know that much on it, but right. I know that they're, they're very close. But this is, like, the beginning, just the cusp of urban air mobility mm-hmm. because now you can get to places faster. Right. I mean, yes. It, now, here's, here's a question for me to you. Would you get on a fully automated drone? I would. I would, too. But to be honest, though, I think there's going to be a lot of people who are going to have a hard time warming up to it. Oh, there is. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I understand that aviation has systems of redundancy to redundancy. There's two of everything on every aircraft mm-hmm. and sometimes three. And I, I really want to stress that aviation is the safest mode of transportation. It, 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 it really is. is. I know I a mean, lot of what I those, said yeah, is scary. I, if you get someone similar to what you're doing who looks at cars and, you know, car accidents and car malfunctions and everything like that, it's even worse. Yeah. I mean, you're you're way safer in the air yeah. with where every single bolt, nut, system on the aircraft is checked every fifty to hundred hours. Mm-hmm. There's certain every part has a time that it needs to be checked. Yeah, and that's why airplanes last so much longer than cars. Cars, you go till it breaks. Mm-hmm. An airplane, you can't let it break. If you start seeing signs signs of it getting ready to break. It's over. Right. That's why, like, <laughs> maintenance and your checklist before flight is very important. And that's where Kent State University, like the airport at One Golf 3, mm-hmm. they, our maintenance is the unsung heroes of the airport. They yeah. do such an amazing job maintaining our aircraft, and I don't think they get a lot of a thanks that they, sh- they deserve. The mechanics up at the airport, mm-hmm. they put their heart and soul into every plane because they know the seriousness of it, and they love what they do. Yeah. Yeah, no, we're we're definitely blessed to have people like that working working with us at the school, and big big shout out to them. So with cars, you know, and there's there's roads. It's directed traffic. Yeah, you you don't drive off the road. Would you kind of set up pre programmed like road airways? Uh, you would have routes that you would fly, and this is where it's kind of getting into the zone that I can't talk about. Yeah, yeah. I know what we can do, but unfortunately, I can't say it on here. Okay, but. You would f- you would have drone airways, and mm-hmm. this is something really cool that we're bringing to the state, that we want these airways that you can have. It's a certain, al- I can't say at X altitude to X altitude, but there's a zone that these these unmanned aircraft are going to fly, and mm-hmm. you can have this air taxi service, yeah. which it's incredible to see, and it's cool to see the technology that's coming out with it. How much longer do you think till Ohio sees this? That's, I don't even know the answer to that, yeah. but it's, it's close. 
it's close. If it, if everything works out the way we want it to, it's close. I'd say maybe three, four, five years down the line. Mm-hmm. That's that's inc- that's incredible. I'm definitely looking forward to this. What well, what got you into drone aviation in the first place? Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor Lorenzen at uh, in the Aeronautics College. He's been an incredible mentor yeah. for me, and he's the one that's been the driving force for commercial drone aviation, and is the most knowledgeable individual on the topic. Mm-hmm. And I could not have asked for a better mentor to work with yeah. on this situation or it, not the situation, but the project itself. He's brilliant with it. He just, he knows what we need to do five steps ahead of where everybody else is. Mm-hmm. How, how'd you even get connected with him in the first place? So I feel bad for him. Cause I would stick after, after class all the time. <laughs> and I would, I'd ask him questions and I know he, he loves the students at Kent State. Mm-hmm. He, is one of those professors and every professor in the Aeronautics College. Yeah. They go above and beyond what their payment even is. We have a very good um, aeronautics school here. We do. Yeah. It's it, second to none. It's the reason I came here mm-hmm. over Bowling Green. The professors put their hearts and soul in everything they do. So, of course, my, myself, I wanted to go into the Air Force. I had to walk away because I herniated a disc in my spine. And, of yeah. course, you can't fly with that in the Air Force. But, of course, I still hold all my certificates and everything. I'm good out here. I have the first class medical. I have it all. I'm, I'm good and I'm approved. So I would stop after his class every day. I would stop. I was talking to him and I would be like, look, I'm, I'm really interested in learning more about air disasters. Yeah. I want to learn more about them and I want to do something with the NTSB. And then over the course of taking his aviation law class, then taking uh, security and policy with him and sticking after class and talking with him, mm-hmm. he goes, you should do the chair program. And I'll mentor you, and you can look into air, air disasters, and you, yeah. can, you can study them, and you can break it down. I think it would be a really good thing for you. And I was like, okay, sure. And he goes, look, just look in the news for airplane accidents, and then just try to investigate it yourself, because you can find all the data of every plane. But it's all public. It's all public. Yeah. So I would go ahead, and I would just I would investigate, uh, find all the variables, and I would actually, I even put them in, like, graphing systems where I could see where the engine was pulled yeah. where or if the engine failed. Would you say that you really went like above and beyond with your research? My thing was, you know, it, Professor Lorenzen was really nice to go out there and take a chance on me because not many people did in the yeah. past. And I'm not saying I was a bad student. It's just people with ADHD like myself, like they never give you a chance. Like my whole high school, I was yeah. pushed through and they were like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, you're not going into aviation. Mm-hmm. You won't be that pilot. Yeah. And that was my driving force for, no, I will. So when I got this opportunity from Professor Lorenz, and I just, I took it and ran mm-hmm. because I knew he took the time on me. I'm going to put my heart, I'm going to put my soul into every ounce of this investigation. Yeah. And it paid off. And I, I mean, honest to God, and, and I want to say this to other students out there, you know, opportunity comes just take it and run with it put everything you got into it because you never know where it's going to lead i i didn't know i i'd never even thought i'd be sitting here in a podcast today yeah i I never thought i would write a textbook (laughs) (laughs) i know and dude i'm definitely so proud of you and like how far you've come because like i in high school i was diagnosed with adhd as well and you know, people just tell me like school is just not your thing. Yeah. I never saw myself as a researcher. And then freshman year, I got accepted into the SURE program. And I started off with my amazing mentor, Dr. Amy Ward. She let me design my own project. Like first being told school's not for you. And then 
being trusted with a whole research project, it really shows you like what you're capable of. Like exactly. you, you can't let other people decide what you can and can't do. You make that decision for yourself. It's not any type of disability. It's a it's a superpower. Exactly. Kanye, I mean, Kanye we, we multi yeah, yeah, we we multitask a little <laughs> bit better. I mean, sure we are like boom, 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 but it sometimes it works out. But yeah. still like it's just one of those things, and, and I'm sure you've seen it yourself. I know where I came from, like everybody, the school was all with its gifted kids. If mm-hmm. you weren't in its gifted program, they didn't care. Yeah. Even if you were a normal student, they were like, okay, yeah, you got some promise. But if you were IEP, they were like, no. Mm-hmm. I definitely understand what you're saying. Um, now, you were working on a, a aviation textbook, right? Yes. Okay. Tell us a little bit about that. So I made my professor and I, we both wrote a textbook the pilot's handbook for unmanned aircraft systems. Mm -hmm. The textbooks mainly focused on how to operate effectively inside a manned crew environment. So you have multi members in one crew, you have a visual observer, Mm -hmm. a person that's manipulating the controls and the remote pilot in command, and then whoever else is important to the research staff. That pilot in command had their certain criteria that they need to know and understand if you're gonna have a crew that, you know, that big. A lot of drone operators are like construction workers, uh, those that work in like climatology, uh, meteorology. In drone aviation, there's nothing that says that, oh, you have to be this to be in it. Yeah. It's not like a, a pilot where you get, the higher you go, the certificates are like, okay, you know, you're held to this standard because we know you're going to be going into that 737. We know you're going to be going into that 747, that Airbus A320. Yeah. A drone pilot is, okay, hey, I got this this cool certificate and I just went to Best Buy and bought myself a drone. I'm just going to go fly it. Mm-hmm. And that's our problem. A lot of people, once they get that certificate, they just throw their hands up and like, I'm allowed to do what I want with this drone. Yeah. And you're not allowed to just do what you want with that drone. It's, it's such a new field and there's hardly any regulation on it because of that. Yes, it is. And it's, it's mm-hmm. slowly starting to get that structure it needs. But right now it is quote unquote, the wild west. Yeah. Now, how, how do you plan on fixing that? Unfortunately, that's something I can't, that's going to be the FAA that yeah. does, but it's baby steps. It really is for commercial drone aviation. We really have to look at what the pilot itself needs and what the airspace itself needs. Mm-hmm. So it's going a lot back and forth with the state and going back and forth with attorneys in our group that we're working with and then you have the department of transportation that wants to make sure everything is done correctly and we don't open the door to some big legal action that can get everybody in trouble Mm -hmm. awesome i definitely look forward to that as well because i I see i see a lot of potential problems coming from (laughs) uh from wild rest of drone aviation too (laughs) now i know you said you never you never saw yourself you know in this position right now and you kind of discovered the SURE program on accident. How has doing research and being part of the SURE program really changed your perspective of things? <clears throat> it taught me a lot more responsibility. Mm-hmm. It showed me what I can and cannot do. And it shows me where I need to work on more. Yeah. First thing was I was not a very strong writer. I write how I talk, mm-hmm. but slowly working and writing case briefs and looking into case law and writing it up and sending it to my boss, my yeah. professor, my mentor. He would provide very good feedback to me, like, okay, this is what you need to work on writing style-wise, but this is really good work. And slowly that started to grow. I've noticed that my my speaking, the way I hold myself has changed, the way I talk has changed. Mm-hmm. I'm a little more 
professional in how I sound. You present yourself very well, <laughs> <laughs> and the stuff you you the stuff you've written on your on your free time that you showed me, I mean, that's just phenomenal. I I can't imagine the growth you went through to get to that point. It took a while, yeah. but it's it's still improving. There's stuff I need to work on, but it a lot of it has been thanks to my mentor and yeah. what he's the opportunities he's given me. I really I say it a lot. I I can't thank him enough because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him, mm -hmm. if he didn't take that chance on me and show me what I'm really capable of and put that love of aviation law and wanting to be an NTSB investigator in charge. It's all thanks to him. And again, I, I can't thank him enough mm -hmm. for it. Yeah. These professors that take their time to work with us and guide us. I mean, that's what they truly are, are mentors. I mean, I haven't, I've had, I've had coaches, I've had teachers, but I mean, professors that I've worked with here have definitely made a, a huge influence on my life. Exactly. Everyone touches you in some way. Mm -hmm. They make, they challenge you to think, which is really good. Like yeah. a lot of professors, like in high school, well, teachers in high school, they were just nine to five. We're done. It was their job. It was, yeah. it was a job. Eight hours and out. Right. But here in academia with college, the professors, they themselves are doing research. Mm -hmm. They, they love what they do. Yeah. So th when they see a student that wants to get into research, a student that is very passionate about something, they will open that door. They will network with you. And that's why I, I tell students in the SURE program, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't right. be afraid to mess up. Don't be afraid to fall. Your mentor is going to be there to catch you, mm -hmm. dust you off, and say, okay, let's try it again. Try it this way this time. Yeah. And then it, when it works, you're sitting there, you get the biggest smile on your face, yeah. like, wow, <laughs> I did that. And then they're there to watch your growth. And mm -hmm. It, that's what makes makes it all worth it for them. Yeah, and that's that's what research is: questions and trial and error, and it teaches you a lot. It does. It teaches you a lot, and it's just being patient with yourself. Because then, then too, it, like with Thomas Edison, it took him ten thousand tries to make one light bulb that worked. Yeah, and you know it may take that long time to get that finished product, but once you get it, it's yours. Mm -hmm. It's your work that you've done. Right. Like I've had documents that I type the case briefs or mm -hmm. I type the executive summary. I give it to my boss and it gets it gets cleaned up and sent to high high level attorneys. And then I've had my work show up on the Ohio Department of Transportation's desk. Really? My That's work, crazy. which is I remember looking at what the docket of the day was yeah. and I was saw like my writing on it. And I was like, this is incredible. This is my work. I still have that copy in my room really? that I look at. And I was like, this is something that I did. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I'm not saying that, yo, that was all me. That's all me. No, it was the team effort that led to that document being on the Ohio Department of Transportation's desk. Mm -hmm. I touched it. And That's you, my fingerprint. Right. On and you, it, had, which a, you is incredible. had a huge impact in it too. Which is cool because it, to think about it, I'm 23, almost 24 in October, mm -hmm. and I put my thumbprint on aviation. Yeah, I already did, and that's that's something a lot of people can't say. Right, a lot of people don't don't even accomplish that in their 40s or mid career, <laughs> and so it's going to be incredible to see everything you do in the future if you're already touching on, on this much right now. So, Kyle, if you had one more thing to share with the world, what would it be? Any opportunity that comes, run with it. Don't be afraid to go out there and talk to your professors, talk to your mentors and be like, look, this is something I'm passionate about. I want to go out there. I want to do this. Be headstrong. Be demanding with yourself. Mm -hmm. Don't be entitled with it, but hold yourself up high. 
be like, look, this is what I want to do with this, this project. And I am going to do what I can to take it and run with it. Mm-hmm. A lot, I told my students that in the SURE program because I had, I was a mentor for 20-some SURE, first-year SURE students. Yeah. And I told them all the same thing. And I get messages from them where that say, look, look what I did. I'm so proud of this. Yeah. I, I, I listened to what you said. I get to stay on for this year. I get to continue my work. And, and thank you for that that just that little bit of advice mm-hmm. and i get emotional with it but it it works guys yeah. like go out there and do what you need to do to make your dream come true mm-hmm. don't let somebody hold you down and tell you what you can and cannot do because if you do that you'll miss this opportunity miss an opportunity and you would have never known yeah. where it could have taken you what doors it could have opened and this that's where i think my mentor jason lorenzen he he opened that door for me and he gave me those opportunities, and he got me to where I am today. And I thank him, and I can't thank him enough for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, shout out to that. And like <laughs> I said, you definitely made an impact on me because, like I said, you were one of the first older students that I connected with. And hearing what you did and the impacts that you already made in your field made me realize, like, I'm, I may be young, and this may be my first experience for research, but I can actually create stuff. Like, I do have a voice, and I have skills, and I have a, I have a power here. And that was one of the things that, you know, led me to create the podcast. And so I may not have a PhD, but I can still do things. You know what I mean? Exactly. And I remember when we first talked, Mm -hmm. you were so driven. And that's why I I told you, I I connected with you and I said, run with it. Because I could see that you were going to do something really cool like this. Mm -hmm. And now to see that you you have your own podcast, (laughs) it's it's incredible to see your growth. And that's something that I myself as a mentor wanted to see. Yeah. And it makes me feel so good right now to like have the ability to come and then invite you onto something and then help you with your work. Exactly. And it's, I'm so proud of where you've become. And, and just please, <laughs> like I said before, run with this. Yeah. You don't know where this can take you. Who knows? This podcast can reach all over the globe. Like what you can do, yeah. your voice. That's the plan. Continue to do it. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll, if you strive and you dig hard enough, you will do it. Yes. And then I'm definitely take the whole community with me. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, Kyle, it's been awesome having you on. You're definitely going to be coming back on for a few more episodes. Oh, absolutely. I'll be glad for <laughs> it. We can, we can talk. Oh, yes. Right. Again, this is your host, John, of The Research Review, creating a platform to inspire. Peace out.